episode 113 of Positive Regression, a motorsports analytics podcast. I'm Alan Kavana, joined as always by David Smith. On this episode, a look at the fastest cars in NASCAR and why they're not winning as much as they used to. Plus, a look back at our preseason predictions and a check-in on how they're going. Spoiler alert, some nice hits and some massive misses. But first, as always, this is episode 113, so we start with a quick look back on the Germain Racing Cup Series program and a discussion about Casey Mears. David, Germain Racing, a known successful truck series team in NASCAR early 2000s, decided to dip its toe into the cup waters back in 2009 before going full-time in 2011. The team, though, closed up shop in 2020 after a total of 425 cup starts. In all, no victories, three top fives. That's it. David, two big things stand out for me when I think about Jermaine Racing. Casey Mears' long run with the team, of course. That's who I most associate with it. And the Geico sponsorship that's sustained for so many years. I mean, that's a big name, big sponsor to stay with such a team for so many years. I'd love to hear your insights on Jermaine Racing. Well, as to the Geico sponsorship, that was the sponsor. That was the only one in the team's existence. They had some one-offs. They had some uh, twisted iced tea come aboard uh, towards the end. But Geico was the flagship sponsor in the linchpin of the program. But the team started, you, you mentioned Casey Mears. Max Pappas was the original driver of the Cub Series program, the final driver was Ty Dillon. Two of the three top five finishes that you mentioned were from Ty Dillon. Uh, And Casey Mears, the longest tenured driver. And boy, that is an interesting subject. Uh, He first got into that car in 2010. He was out of it following the 2016 season. And a look at his uh, production stats His peer rankings for each of his six full seasons in the Germain ride were 44th out of 47 drivers, 48th out of 50 drivers, 35th out of 52, 27th out of 51, that was the high mark, 46th out of 49, and 42nd out of 44. But it wasn't really just Casey Mears, Ty Dillon too, Uh, his rankings were 33rd out of 42, 46th out of 47, and 23rd out of 45. So never at any point did Jermaine Racing have a top 20 driver in terms of production from 2010 to 2019. I know that the fan outcry was loud when Geico publicly stepped away as a sponsor in order to become one of the premier partners of NASCAR in lieu of a, of a title sponsor of the cup series. There are four or five premier partners in fairness to Geico. The company gave Jermaine a pretty (laughs) long leash there. 11 years worth. Yeah. Considering that the team didn't accomplish anything really 11 years. So you can kind of understand a, a pivot to something else. And this whole program, Alan, it, it strikes me because because we've just saw it with Brad Keselowski and Roush Fenway Racing. Certainly the driver is just one piece of the puzzle in auto racing. Uh, auto racing is a team sport disguised as an individual endeavor. 
But Germain Racing never really hit a competitive stride until maybe towards the end uh, with the affiliation with Richard Childress Racing. But the driver, Alan, the kind of driver a team hires is tantamount to a mission statement. And we think of what Roush Fenway just did in hiring Brad Keselowski. That is a pretty serious statement of intent for an organization that for a while was in the weeds. I mean, really spiraling into just irrelevance, right? You know, was was Trevor Bain really the future? They were bouncing around. They were having second thoughts. It it, it really wasn't clear post Carl Edwards. And now they've found their footing, or, or at least they have chosen a pathway that will lead them into the future. So I look at this Jermaine racing team. They never attempted anything of this sort. And not only is hiring Casey Mears not a great idea, uh, knowing what he gives you, uh, or, or let's be honest, what he doesn't give you, and still keeping him and hanging on to that status quo for six years that is a dangerous proposition. And I I just kind of look at teams that did this in the past. You, you don't hit home runs unless you swing for the fences. I would argue that Jermaine never took the bat off of their shoulders. And now the team no longer exists. And we think back, what would have RCR been if Richard Childress hadn't stepped aside as the driver and put Dale Earnhardt in the car? What if Gene Haas never lured Tony Stewart away with an ownership stake? Hendrick Motorsports, maybe not a apples to apples example because they were winning races, but it hadn't won a championship when Jeff Gordon was hired. Gordon's stepfather demanded that Ray Evernham be the crew chief. And despite the reluctance, Hendrick bet big on it and it panned out. So the lesson here is that at some point, not just for success in auto racing, but probably also for survival, you're going to have to make a big bet. And if you do not make that bet or any bet, then there certainly is no jackpot. I'm not saying it's okay to spend money like a drunk sailor, but <laughs> Jermaine really never once bet big. And yeah, 425 collective starts, no wins. I think that's a cautionary tale. Wow. A lot there. Well said, David, about life and about racing. Good perspective. Conservatively, if you think $10 million a year for sponsorship, right? Conservatively, maybe that 11 years, uh, that's $110 million divided by three, the number of top fives, that's $36.3 million per top five. Is that good ROI for a sponsor? I mean, some things you can't just wrap your head around, you know, maybe there's business to business things who knows, you know, there's weird financials sometimes, but just to contemplate those numbers for that return. It's kind of crazy. Yes. Uh, I think it just makes it all the more puzzling. This was a good relationship for a long time between sponsor and owner and certainly Bob Germain, big time car dealer in Florida. Wouldn't shock me if Geico insurance Mm. had something to do there, but you're right. You're absolutely right. Because, we think of Geico, this is a significant company, right? It falls under the Warren Buffett uh, family of of uh, of companies. It, it could have gone anywhere. It could have been a sponsor for any organization seemingly if it wanted to, and it didn't. And not only that, it really – it isn't the sponsorship, but maybe the tacit lack of ambition 
from one organization to just say, yeah, we're fine. This is this is kind of what we're doing and we're just floating along. We have the one sponsor. And it was when that when that one sponsor went away, that was it. And they didn't really have a response to that. If there was a little bit more ambition involved, they would have taken every measure possible to improve performance and just running through three drivers, Max Pappas wasn't uh, an experienced stock car driver when he stepped in. That was a quick decision to remove him and put Casey Mears in. Mears, you knew what you had. Ty Dillon showed you what he had, and and still they kind of stood pat. And I, I think it's a lesson. Eventually, yeah. you have to you have to take your team into maybe a place where you're uncomfortable just to see how far you can actually go and. Some of these bigger organizations, even Penske, when they hired Brad Keselowski the first uh, initially, that as a as a team they they were sort of in the weeds. Ryan Newman had left. David Stremme was in the car, and they were struggling. And Brad Keselowski at that time was a big bet. That kind of driver to commit to Penske that was enormous. And we didn't see that here with Jermaine and they are no longer on the racetrack. And I'm wondering if that isn't part of it. And quickly I'll reveal to the listeners, uh, off mic, there are a few things more passionate that David, uh, has more passion about than when we talk about Casey Mears, explain Casey Mears to us, David, you went through his stats at Jermaine, but this is a driver who was employed by Hendrick employed by Chip Ganassi and then employed for a long stretch by another, you know, what they're all top level in the cup series, right? I mean, by, by another cup series team for a long time, this wasn't a, a cup of coffee. He had a long cup series career despite a lack of performance. What do you, how do you wrap your mind around that? Also RCR. He, he, yes. Rem- yeah, yeah, yeah. Clint Boyer was removed from the Jack Daniels RCR car into a Cheerios ride. I, I, I can't believe you would split with Clint Boyer and Jack Daniels, but Casey <laughs> Mears got that ride. Um, honestly, hats off. One of the greatest con men in NASCAR history, Casey Mears. I, I don't try as I may, I don't understand it. Um, in all seriousness, the production numbers were not there. It might be a scenario in which he was a good dude to have around, but even then, if that is the argument, then I question the ambition. Um, I am in the camp that just does not understand the logic behind hiring some drivers and atop that list is Casey Mears. That's for another episode, but wow, (laughs) hell of a discussion to go into episode 113, a look back at Jermaine Racing in the infamous 13 car. Great stuff, great start to episode 113. When your business is starting its championship run, nothing matters more than finding and hiring the best team. With Indeed, you have the power to build a dynasty by hiring more MVPs faster. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer valid through March 31st. If you're hiring, you need Indeed because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applicants that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. No matter how the last game went, anytime you take the field, you got a shot at greatness. 
Give your team the best shot at winning by recruiting more MVPs with Indeed. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, let's get it going, David. Um, We're in the middle of a break, right? Two-week break for the Cup Series. But that means we can really look down and analyze things that are going on, bigger trends throughout the season. You did a great article for NBC Sports talking about Top speeds, fastest cars in races. Now, any listener to this podcast for a long time knows that we often say the fastest car, this is eye-opening for some, but generally, on average, the fastest car only wins about 40% of the time. David, this year you have found so far through your analysis that the fastest car is only winning 27% of the time here in 2021. It was significant enough for you to point out and write an article for NBC Sports, and that's what we're going to dive into right now here on the podcast because it does seem like something of a drop. Well, let's start with that. You're a stats guy, a math guy. We don't want to get in too much, but a significant change like that from, say, 40 to 27%, is, is that enough to catch your eye, and that's why we're talking about it? It is, and it's something that I wanted to, specifically for NBC Sports, to write about, really just report on it. It it was not an opinion piece. It was a look at a drop in something that traditionally has been a steady number. So why is it lower? I I wanted to look into that. And, And firstly, let's address the weekend protocol. What started under pandemic restrictions became the norm because owners kind of like not having to pay for practice and qualifying. So we're in year two of no practice, no qualifying. Can that impact the winner coming from the fastest car? Yeah, it can. Uh, James Small admitted as much when he said that he utilized initial runs of races first to the competition caution and then, and then to the end of the first stage is sort of a feeling out process, a, a de facto practice. He did this at Phoenix uh, when Martin Truex won it. Martin Truex had the 12th fastest car in the first stage. He had the fastest car in the final stage. In theory, if they had practiced, Truex would have just come out of the gates hot and had the fastest car outright. But this change to the weekend schedule did not have as big of a dent in 2020 as you'd expect, because the fastest car won 36% of the time last year. And that is not a big drop from the 40% traditional rate. So we have to look at what is increasing the drop beyond that. And I just, it's just odd occurrences, really. Uh, Kyle Larson had a few, uh, losing Pocono with the blown tire. That was the fastest car that cut a tire that day. Losing Atlanta because he could not conserve tires. He had the fastest car that day. Chase Elliott on the Daytona road course. Boy, the the fan reaction from Elliott fans, they prefer to blame NASCAR, but (laughs) Elliott did overreach a pair of times in that race, nearly spinning once and then getting spun after he he tried to blend back in between Keselowski and Hamlin in the middle of the chicane, Uh, whatever the case, whoever's at blame. That was the fastest car uh, that he's had this season relative to the field, and he ended up finishing 21st. 
Christopher Bell on the Bristol dirt yep. caught in an early accident. And I don't know if there's been a more impactful accident this season because it also included Kyle Larson and Chase Briscoe. I'd argue that accident opened the race up for a litany of drivers, which included Daniel Suarez. We saw a strong run from him. Ryan Priest, too. Uh, and I'm not sure anyone pegged Logano as uh, the winner. Austin Sindrick at Road America qualified fifth, claimed the lead, broke his rear gear while in the lead. That could have been a fun story had he uh, prevailed. It would have been the first uh, road course ringer to score a win in um, quite some time. So we have a lot of truly out there occurrences that really didn't have anything to do with the, we'll call it the multifaceted competitive nature of NASCAR, the, the, the reasoning that gets to that 40% mark. Uh, just two of those weird occurrences that they flip back the other way, we're talking about a 36% rate and that's on par with what we saw last year. So there's no reason to panic. There's no reason to think ill of any of this. As far as I can tell, it's noteworthy to me in that this is indeed the percentage and where we're at. And we are sort of able to detail why it has come to this number. Great analysis and good, you know, it's it's eye-opening for some because we, we associate speed with winning, right? And to find out that uh, to, to it's almost hard to reconcile sometimes. What do you mean the fastest car didn't win? Well, actually, it happens more often than not, and it's happening a little more here in 2021. When we think speed and this, you know, 40% rate or even lower in NASCAR, and then you look at other series, right? I mean, uh, like Formula One haters or lovers, right? It, it sometimes can be a, a race to the first corner, right? For, for the fastest car, and then the fastest car wins the race. You know, how does NASCAR and these 40% rates jive with things like F1 and other series around the world? Okay, good question. I wrote this article last week, and when it posted, it gained a fair amount of traction. I don't think the comprehension of it was universal. There were. Folks who read it and saw it as a slam on NASCAR, uh, a sign of a broken series, and that's not it at all. Uh, In fact, I think NASCAR, the Cup Series specifically, at this 40% rate since 2005, so this predates stage racing, playoffs, all that good stuff, it's in a nice spot. Formula One, because you mentioned that, uh, it, it is overly speed dependent and you said first corner. I say qualifying. I mean, <laughs> if you if you qualify poorly, your weekend's done. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a series that, for the most part, it's all car, almost to a fault. The inverse of that, though, and this is you know the purity of of racing, where, where the purists would would be astounded, is endurance sports car racing, uh, popular with purists. I, I, I got to be honest, it is hella random when comparing speed output to results. And I'm not sure that that should be a surprise considering, hello, it's in the title, endurance sports car racing. But this year's Rolex 24 saw no correlation between speed and results. It was won by Wayne Taylor Racing in large part because they were the team that spent the least amount of time on pit road in that race. Uh, the 12 Hours of Sebring was won by the car that was literally the slowest of its Daytona prototype class. So if those two series are the yin and the yang, I think NASCAR 
is a happy middle ground, or at least that's how it strikes me, where there are a lot of things. It can be speed, it can be driving talent, it can be strategy. Each can have a sizable impact on finishing position. And I'd like to hear your take, but for me as an as an analyst, I like it because it gives me a lot to talk about and to dissect. And not only that, it sort of elevates every person working for a team uh, in that their contribution on any given day in any given race could have a positive impact and potentially a monumental race winning impact. Huge. And I, and I think that's a perfect explanation of it. Be, you know, NASCAR, the races are longer. So that adds in a, a something of an endurance factor or it adds a potential strategy factor, right? When you have longer races and more pit stops and more pit calls and strategy. And without that, you know, that, that's why we talk about green flag pit cycles and decision makers on top of the box. That's why you talk about box time when it comes to pit uh, pit crews and everything. We were just talking about it on last week's episode, how much of an effect that they can have on cars that are clearly faster. I mean, you know, in, in New Hampshire, Ryan Blaney had a super fast car, but lost a bunch of spots multiple times on pit road. I mean, all that stuff factors in. If it was just based on pure speed, uh, it would be a different sport we were watching, right? It would be more like the Formula Ones of the world. And that's what makes it different. And I think, <laughs> like just like you said, everyone has an effect on it because of the length of the races and because of the strategy that can be implemented. So, but it's still, David, even despite all that, all the, all the things we see and that, that are obvious, about NASCAR, it still is eye-opening to many people when you have to explain or when you just when you learn it or it becomes apparent that yeah, the fastest car only wins about 40% of the time. It, it can be hard to wrap your mind around, but that's not necessarily a negative. I think that just enhances all the stuff I just talked about. The decision makers, the strategy, the pit crews, all that stuff factors in to who wins a race. It's not just pure raw speed. It's not a drag race from point A to point B. No. No, and think of the stylistic differences it's created. We have full course cautions in NASCAR. We kind of take that for granted, but sometimes you just have to step back and tell purists, hey, we compete on ovals. We have to have full course cautions, which means restarts. And drivers that have a special knack for restarts have a leg up in those scenarios. And again, as an analyst, and this is purely selfish at this point, but it, it gives us a lot to dissect and it makes NASCAR, especially the Cup Series, I would say more intricate just in maybe not the car specifically, although it sounds as if it's getting there, but more intricate in terms of every possible facet of competition has to matter or certainly does matter because it comes to the surface and impacts race results. So for one, I don't, I don't think this is a sign of a broken series at all. I'm actually quite happy with the 40% number, even if it's a dip this year, I think there's still plenty of time for it to turn back. There's 14 races, but, um, if it's there, I, I feel kind of okay with where it's at. It's the series isn't broken. The sport isn't broken. It's not the sign of the apocalypse. It's just the sign of, of a lot of things mattering and having an effect. Sure, speed is the stat uh, that is most correlative with success, but so many other things matter. And that's what helps make this a, certainly a unique 
part of auto racing, uh, a unique genre within the, the wider uh, uh, sport. But um, that's uh, I, I think it makes it compelling and, uh, and interesting, at least uh, from my point of view. Absolutely. And again, I'm just sitting here thinking, you know, I talked about pit crews and decision making on top of the pit box. How, how much talk do we do about restarts and restart skill, right? And restart choosing ability, all that stuff. I mean, that's what makes up for your lack of speed and puts the hands, the power in the hands of a driver, right? To make up some of what could be a lack of speed. And that's what kind of makes it exciting, right? That, that's why we talk about these things and these metrics and driver performance. I mean, your peer scores, it's not all based on speed and who has the fastest car. It's what you're doing with it. And, and that's where we can discern the driver talent. And that's my favorite part of the sport, right? What a driver contributes to the car, not just how fast the car is. Which is a lot. You know, the, yeah. the, the driver certainly has an influence and has the ability to influence a race result more so than in Formula One, I'd argue. And c- compared to sports car racing, I, I I don't think I like my sport being completely random. I, I, you do want things to matter. Of course, every race is different. Uh, no two wins are alike. No two winners are alike. There are certain drivers that can't win a certain way. And the, the stylistic differences for me are intriguing, you know, something that we can always point back to and have a more proper understanding of each driver, of each team. I think it's the 40% uh, traditional rate isn't a bad thing. I think it's it's what helps make uh, makes NASCAR uh, just fantastic uh, to watch and, and genuinely uh, a good product, even though that can, that can be argued from week to week, but in a broad scope, I, I think what we watch every Sunday is a pretty good product. Absolutely. And yeah, just put a bow on it. I mean, I think of the last two championship races, Kyle Busch did not have the fastest car at Homestead. Chase Elliott did not have the fastest car in Phoenix last year, but it takes more than just pure speed it takes teams, it takes sometimes mistakes, it takes good decision-making, all of that factors in. I think most of us listening would agree that's what makes NASCAR NASCAR and kind of why we enjoy it. Next up, David, let's use our little time here in the break, the two-week Olympic break, to check in on our preseason predictions because back in early February, it was episode 90, uh, 23 old weeks ago already. Wow, how about that? Uh, we made some predictions, right? And we try to make informed predictions. You, you know, we don't do the, the hot takey thing. We try to make informed, educated predictions about the season to come. So we're going to use this off-week time to check in on them and see just how indeed, you know, how we're doing. Uh, David, both you and I went back and listened, looked at our notes for episode 90, First up, back way back then, you said Kurt Busch will rank outside the top 10 in speed, but will win one race. David, round of applause. You are so far correct. Congratulations. <laughs> I am the Rolex wearing, limousine riding, jet flying. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> yes, the number one car driven by Kurt Busch. Sits 13th in median lap rank. He has one win in hand, and this extends his personal win streak to eight consecutive seasons with at least one victory. You said on episode 90 that this was a safe pick. My retort to that was that it was unsafe 
For the fact that he drives for Chip Ganassi Racing, I find that interesting now that that organization will cease to exist beyond this year. Uh, It's Cup Series or Operation anyway. I'm feeling fantastic uh, about this pick. And if you're Kurt Busch, you're feeling doubly fantastic because he's probably going to get a payday somewhere. We don't know where. (laughs) It might be 2311 Racing. It might be Trackhouse. We don't know just yet. But to extend that streak, again, in a car that doesn't uh, doesn't fire off well every weekend. I don't know how you felt about it after that disastrous Coca-Cola 600 performance for both Ganassi teams, but uh, there have been some low points this year, but he's turned it around. He will be in the playoffs as Kurt Busch is wont to do. Does this come with an asterisk? Because if he wins twice, does that make your prediction wrong? Because you oh, said he'll on. win one. Oh, I'm just, I'm just being oh. technical. I'm just oh, being technical gosh. here. Uh, no, kudos to you. That was a great prediction. And yeah, he's Kurt Busch. Of course, he's going to win. So that that was by no means, uh, you know, I didn't think I didn't go far out on a limb on that one. But you know, you never know with speed, right? We were just talking about it. So kudos to you on that one, David. One of mine was I, I predicted. Joey Logano would become a top 10 passer once again. And technicality, Dave, I only meant on road courses. So technically I'm right here. What? No, No, you did not. I'm kidding. No, No, I I clearly did not mean only road courses. So I am a bit off on my prediction. I was hoping for a case of positive regression. He was a down passer in 2020 after being a very good passer in 2019. So in my mind, I was like, you know, it's Joey Logano. Maybe he'll swing back. Things will come back and he will be a quality passer once again. Well, so far, things have not swung that way, David. Not only is he not in the top 10 overall, according to motorsportsanalytics.com, he is in the bottom two, which is not a good place to be. The only driver worse than him at the moment, Anthony Alfredo. Yes, wrap your head around that. This is Okay, so just be clear, when we talk about good passers, we're essentially a measure of what you should be doing with the car under you, right? With the cars you are encountering. Logano, not good right now with the car he has and what he should be doing with it. I guess there's time, but right now, my prediction way off, he is not in the top 10 passer right now. And and to be clear, you mentioned that it's what he should be doing. His adjusted pass differential for the season is positive five spots. So it's a plus five. The problem with that is his statistical expectation is positive 83 spots. (laughs) So he's well, based on where he typically runs, based on the speed of the car, he is far below what should be happening. And yeah, uh, now it's two straight years um, with bad passing output uh, after really his his lone season of good passing output came in 2019. I'm wondering, Alan, if that was the aberration. Yeah, and then that that's fair to ask because, uh, again, pardon my assumption. I, again, I just <laughs> hoped it would swing back in the other direction and maybe average itself out. But so far into 2020, we are not seeing that. So my prediction was off. Again, maybe some time to rectify it. We shall see. Next up, David, you predicted Eric Jones will lead the Cup Series in surplus passing value on non-drafting ovals. 
put this in the, I remember the theory, the discussion, right? Was that Eric Jones would be in the 43 car, not as fast as equipment he's been in before. He'd be in the back of the field a lot, but he would use his deft passing skills to make up a lot of positions. And then maybe strategy would send him to the back and he would make up a lot of positions again. And that would enhance his passing numbers, right? That, that was the theory, correct? Correct. And this wasn't really a stretch because he ranked fourth in this category last year. One of the drivers that ranked above him was Jimmy Johnson, and he has since retired. But Eric Jones ranks 18th in this category right now. Had I included road courses in this, he would rank 15th. So he's actually been a kind of a, a surprise on road courses, but a tough go, as we sort of expected with this team. He is at a .500 peer driving for Richard Petty Motorsports. His only two top 10 finishes came in the first seven races. The car ranks 23rd in average median lap time. Still 14 races left for him to move those numbers back in a good direction. Uh, Though to be fair, RPM having a top 15 passer, it it kind of seems like something they'd be happy to settle on in the free agent market. And that is what they have right now. Uh, Andrew Merstein uh, has, has gone on the record, uh, co-owner of RPM, has gone on the record saying that they're pretty happy. They would like the relationship to continue beyond this year. Jones has an option. I don't know that there are really any other realistic moves he can make. So he might be there for a while. I think the final 14 races could be an opportunity to make the best out of uh, yeah, an iffy situation. So we'll see it. That, that, that's a good driver in the car. Um, he is having a very tough year. Yes, far from the lead of SPV on non-drafting ovals. We'll see what he can do to turn it around. Next up, David, I predicted Chase Briscoe would win on a road course. Um, that's still TBD. Obviously, he has not done it yet, but to be determined. I think I still have a shot, honestly, really. His two best career finishes, you know, this season <laughs> are on the road courses. The sixth place finishes, what, uh, I think Road America maybe and Coda with the other one. Or he's got two sixth place finishes on road courses. Apologize if I got one of those wrong. But you factor that in, his skills. I mean, what he's done at the Indianapolis road course before, albeit in an Xfinity car. But you factor those good finishes with, you know, SHR seems to be picking up a little speed lately on the 750 tracks, which these road courses shall be. Uh, I think it's still TBD and you never know. And I'm taking my three remaining road courses and we're going to look back at this at the end of 2021. This isn't over, David. I don't mean to be a wet blanket here. Actually, I do. I do. <laughs> yes, I do, do need to be it. Yes, you uh, do. We, we, we just talked about SPV with Eric Jones, surplus passing value. The only track type on which rookie Chase Briscoe does not have a positive surplus passing value is road courses. So interesting nugget there. And we talked about this uh, back when we had RJ Kraft on, on the episode uh, a couple of weeks ago. It's really... Tough to see, considering he doesn't have the out-and-out speed or really the team that's throwing these long balls in hopes of fetching a race win. Um, I don't know. I don't know if the designs are truly there for it. I think at this point, and, and and I brought this up on episode 90 when you made this prediction, it wasn't going to be originally an opportunity to pad points. Now he he's kind of forced into a corner and he has to win. The, the only reservation I really have is that 
we just haven't seen this team attempt to do that. So we're hitting up Watkins Glen right after we return from the break. You mentioned the Indianapolis uh, Grand Prix road course. Can they do it? Can they do something that they haven't really tried all season and do it successfully? I think that's an interesting question. It certainly would be fun to watch, but I wonder if if any of these teams having practiced this, having to kind of know what they need to do to take these Hail Mary shots just to see if they can find themselves in a position for a waste win, if that is some kind of advantage over a team that has not tried this. All right, that's fair. I'm still taking my three shots though, and we shall revisit. I'm not. I'm not putting a, a wrong. I'm not going the you know the family feud on this quite yet. So we're going to come back to this. Next up, David, you predicted Greg Ives will strategize his way to a win on a 550 horsepower track. The good news: Alex Bowman and crew have three wins. One of them at Pocono, a 550 horsepower track. Uh, I don't know how much credit you're giving to the crew chief, but look, I, I will give you credit for the prediction because they did win. Uh, I don't know if they strategized Kyle Larson's tire blowing up in the last corner, but you have to be there to be in position to capitalize on such things. So I, I will let you decide. This is like a teacher deciding, you know, giving yourself the grade. I will let you decide this prediction, David, how well Greg Ives did to uh, to strategize his way to that win at Pocono, a 550 track. Uh, well, of, of course it was influenced by strategy. Uh, yeah, the, I mean, we, yeah, we talked about Larson's blown tire just being one of those freak occurrences, but Greg Ives gained six positions for Alex Bowman on green flag pit cycles, including a seventh place to fourth place leap on the final cycle. And that was the running whereabouts that allowed Alex Bowman to pick that inside restart spot after a few cars had passed on it, which was kind of strange. That was the second most valuable restart spot at Pocono, but okay. But I'm, yeah, I mean, Ives, you know what? I'll let our listeners decide, uh, Alan, if Pocono was enough, if not, that's fine. I'm not going to, you know, wave a flag and celebrate a win just yet. But uh, Ives has been incredible for the whole of the season, uh, just based on his retention numbers and in some of these isolated moments, and if we think back to uh, the other places they won, uh, a lot uh, had to do with strategy. Richmond alone, Greg Ives delivered nine positions to Alex Bowman across the last three pit cycles of that race. It was a short track race uh, where Bowman got that win. Dover was all pit crew. Um, it was a lot of Hendrick speed. Uh, Bowman had a negative 22.13% surplus passing value. That is the worst passing mark by a cup series race winner since I created that metric in 2014. <laughs> but uh, Ives's influence, that was more pit crew related. They did not have a green flag pit cycle in that race, but just in totality, you know, um, conversation aside, Greg Ives is just phenomenal. I, I called him a rock star crew chief, a star in the making, on episode 90, uh, I still believe that to be the case. And he is just enhancing his reputation week in and week out. 
good stuff. I'll give you full credit. Don't worry. And just an Alex, Bo- <laughs> an Alex Bowman note at this point in the season. My favorite part about the Richmond win, David, is that I asked him about, I was in New Hampshire covering the race for PRN and I asked him, you know, he didn't have the, the best record or what have you at, at New Hampshire. And he goes, yeah, but we sucked at Richmond and then I won there. So we can, it, it, the attitude was we can do just about anything because I sucked at Richmond before and won. I could suck here and maybe win. So th- that's a, a quality attitude. That they've also delivered to Alex Bowman in the 40 crew with a taste of success i like what they're going so far this year finally david uh my prediction was greg Irwin, crew chief for matt de benedetto vaults himself into the top half of strategists now we were this was in reference to green flag pit cycles and retaining your position my prediction was that matty d's crew chief would uh after a poor year would vault himself into the top half of strategists uh this did not happen uh, we can officially say this one is over because <laughs> Greg Irwin, unfortunately, has been reassigned. Whatever the word is, Greg Irwin is no longer a crew chief, no longer Matty D's crew chief specifically. So uh, I guess I was wrong. <laughs> As of his last race, David, he had retained his car's position 53% of the time and lost 35 positions total on pit road. Neither of those were in the top half of pit road strategist, so I was wrong. Now, before you speak, David, I will. I'm, I'm going to take partial credit because what I was getting at is Greg Ir- Irwin was going to improve, right? Well, last year he was at 40%. So if he's at 50% this year, he did improve. I know if we're playing semantics, I lose a little bit, but I'm just glad he improved a little bit. Not the top half, but he did improve as I predicted. Uh, please put down the straw that you were grasping right now. <laughs> You could not possibly have been more wrong. I mean, this, the, oh my God, my bad, my bad. It's not, you know what? I'm, and I'm not, I'm not going to, he, he, I mean, essentially lost his job, so I'm not going to poke fun, but it's sort of, it, it is, it's interesting, right? Because Irwin wasn't always this bad of a strategist, right? When, when, when we deliver analysis, it isn't something that's evergreen because things change, things evolve. And especially in the crew chief role, that job in general has evolved. The way races are called has changed. And over the last few years, I mean, I, we've, we've talked about the Penske organization, but him specifically, I don't know if he just failed to adapt to what was happening now on the racetrack. But the reason you made this prediction was it can't possibly be worse than what it was (laughs) last year. And it was really close to being just as bad. And then he lost his job. Uh, and, and, and that's just, that's, that is a, that is a tough beat, but it sort of goes to show that this sport develops at a rapid pace. It kind of passes you by if you're not paying attention. And because he failed to evolve or at least improve on those numbers, um, he's, he's out of the job. And it's important that if you look at what was going wrong and you see it as a weakness, you, you do really need to work hard to adapt because that specifically for Matt Benedetto, whose strength is restarts, his weakness is long runs. He really needed help on long runs and he didn't get it. And that was part of the problem with that 21 car. So in that sense, it's a failure to understand what the driver needed, at least between green and checkered flag, what the driver needed the most. And that did not happen. 
And look, Matty D has said he that, that is the decision that maybe should have been made earlier or he wished he had been listened to and that the team is gelling now. We'll see what they will do. But my prediction on Greg Irwin did not work out. Good stuff, David. You know, I think we're batting 500 uh, somewhere around there. That'll get us in the Hall of Fame, as I like to say. We'll see how all these predictions play out at the very end of the season. But it was good. Good time. Good point to look back and see how we're doing so far. Episode 113 of Positive Regression. It was a good one. That's good stuff. We are available on all major podcast platforms, no matter your device. Our entire back catalog of episodes is available for free at posregpod.com. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating or review. This stuff helps in spreading the word. We do notice, and it is so appreciated. If you have any questions, we'd love to hear them. Reach out on Twitter at posregpod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, even though it's an off weekend, you're always working hard. What do you got? This week, I'm posting a slew of free agent profiles on Forbes. Already posted are uh, profiles on Kurt Busch, Ross Chastain, and Eric Almarola. I will also highlight the top strategists year to date in the Cup Series, but that will be for NBC Sports. So if you don't want to miss any of that, follow me on Twitter at David Smith MA, and you will see the links for all of that good stuff. Good stuff. Those Forbes articles are good, especially the Ross Chastain one, just talking about teams. And if, if they really look into talent evaluation, you know, that that could make a huge difference in where Ross Chastain's career goes right now. And uh, make sure you read that article. It's good. Uh, just look at my Twitter feed. Keep up with me on all the social media platforms that I have, Twitter, Facebook, all that stuff. Uh, every Thursday after you listen to this podcast, I hope you're checking out my feed for the quick hits video that comes out from Speed Sport. That just sets the table of racing for your weekend beyond NASCAR, dirt, dragsters, all sorts of stuff. It is a great little video to watch and uh, wet your palate for the upcoming weekend so you know what's going on there. No fantasy this weekend. Again, another, another off weekend for the NASCAR Cup Series, but that shall be back, so make sure you watch that. And uh, yeah, just keep up with me on Twitter. Much appreciated. Thank you, as always, for listening. Positive regression for David Smith. I'm Alan Cabana. This has been episode 113. We'll see you next week. Join Tubi in celebrating Black History Month with the largest free collection of black cinema streaming every day of the year, including exclusive Tubi originals, Howard High, and Pass the Mic. Tubi. Watch free.